Hello, uh, hello, beautiful people. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Corey. And Jake. And welcome to Series Conversation. Uh, today we are going to be talking about the... Uh, the Scream Quadrilogy. Yeah. So, uh, what, uh, let's, let's start with the first film. Um, yeah, well, it's one of the few horror films I watched, like, for our listeners here, I haven't really, I wasn't really into horror at first, because I had kind of a white aversion, uh, aversion to gore, like, com- various comic books, and Chewed, Laughter Life of Archie, The Walking Dead, they helped with that. The Walking Dead isn't that gory, it's just, it's okay. But, like, various things helped with it, and watching it last year kicked off my wanting to watch more of the horror genre. But before that, I braved my way through Scream, even though it scared the crap out of me years ago, and rewatched it a few months ago when I got all four of them. And since we both had all four, me and Corey decided to do this, since our schedules were busy this month. Yeah. So, uh... Yeah, Scream franchise for me is kind of an interesting one because it actually started my interest in the horror genre. I think I saw the first film when I was like nine and I basically fell in love with it. And with the help of like Halloween and Creepshow, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, it those films basically propelled my love for the horror genre. Which is a good place to start. Like, maybe not with the later Halloween sequels, but we'll get to that someday. Yeah. Um, but I, we do hope to see the new one at some point. Yeah. So, uh, Scream, you know, kind of has a... Uh, I have, like, a soft spot for it. Well, me too. Like, there's this one internet reviewer I like, Welshie, who, like... If you haven't heard of him, someone did upload his videos on YouTube so you can check them out. Like, he did a whole retrospective on Scream. That's what made me first want to watch the franchise. Like, I only got as far as the first one, but that's what made me want to watch it. Because Matt Williams, a.k.a. Welshie, like, just did a really good job describing them and had a close personal connection to them himself, having grown up with them as a teenager. Except for the fourth one, obviously, because that came out while he... That was the reason he was doing the retrospective in the first place. Okay. And then he later did one on the fourth one. One to, you know, even it up. Huh. But yeah, like, my love comes from there and from it being one of the first horror movies I watched and really, really loved. Like, I never got really into Freddy because he scared the crap out of me for some time. Now, watching the films and his rap video helped with that. (laughs) And yes, Freddy had a rap video with the fat boys, in case you didn't know. You're welcome. I did not know that, but that, okay. Uh, Yeah, he did. I only know that thanks to Brad Jones videos, but I'm so glad I do. And you're the one who showed me the, like, Will Smith's Nightmare on My Street, which was written for, like, clearly written for the second film. They just rejected it for whatever reason, which I did not get at all, because you have Will, like, even this is before he's world superstar Will Smith, Smith, and actor-rapper of the late 90s Will Smith, or even the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I'm not sure. No, it'd be the 80s, so no. Yeah, he was he was known as uh, it was it was DJ Jazzy, Jazzy Jeff, Jeff and, and him as the Fresh Prince. Right. But like he wasn't like Fresh Prince of Bel Air the series yet. So right. what? Which 
funny enough, I know we're getting off topic. We'll get back to it soon enough, I promise. But before we get off Will Smith's Nightmare on My Street, which is a decent enough song, and there's the fact that Will only did Fresh Prince because he had, was behind on his taxes, apparently. Really? Yeah, like it did spark a genuine love of acting. He did seem to enjoy, have enjoyed done the series. He just did it because he needed money. Okay. Or he I got mean, screwed in an investment or something like that. And Yeah, uh, I mean, I I grew, grew up watching uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and I, I really enjoyed that show. So I'm, I'm glad that hey, he was in that situation because he, he brought out yeah, a... Yeah, God bless tax evasion. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, yeah, we should probably get back on this to scream though but yeah like it clearly has a special like I didn't know that Corey that was that special to you I just picked it because I really liked the fr- liked it wanted an excuse to watch the movies I already had yeah um so first film came out in 1996 and was directed by Wes Craven uh, as were all of them like he did right. like that's something that's curious to me is like with Nightmare on Elm Street he was only involved in three films the original he wrote the script for Dream Warriors, which is part of why it's so great. And he did it uh, like, and he later directed the meta film, the meta film, and kind of a precursor to Scream. I don't think Kevin Williamson wrote it, but he, like, but kind of a precursor to what he'd do with here with Scream, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yep. And you can kind of tell just by what Lilac saw of that film, like we're going to make fun of his commercialization and just sick of the genre he created he was already starting to get before he signed on for Scream. And the weird thing is, apparently at first he didn't really want to do it. But I think part of it was just because he was tired of the slasher genre. And then once he actually sat down and read the script, he saw both that Kevin Williamson had some real talent, which he does, even if he's gone off and did things like Dawson's Creek. He does have genuine talent. And that's part of why the first two films are so great. And the fourth, even if the fourth was heavily rewritten, but we'll get to that. But, and he also apparently, though I can't find a true source for the, like a full source for this. I get most of my information from TV tropes trivia, but like, the mo- apparently he wanted to end the slasher genre. Like, just make it so no one could ever take it serious again, and the opposite happened, for better and for worse. Like, that's something I would like to talk about, is a lot of slasher fans apparently don't like this movie because it made a mockery of the genre, and most films try, and then it spawned a bunch of clones trying to be self-aware but not getting why it worked for this film. Oh, uh, for Scream? Yeah. Oh. Like, I don't get that, but I... I've actually not heard very many people strongly dislike Scream, so I mean... Well, apparently, like, apparently some don't. Okay. Like, but, like, I haven't heard it from a lot of people. Like, some people don't, and I get why. It's very meta. It does take apart the genre, and if you have a deep abiding love of it, goofiness and all. But to me, having a deep abiding love of... of this film, despite its own goofiness, I don't get it when it doesn't seem like it does come down hard on the slasher genre, especially in the first one. But it's also clearly coming from someone who cares about it and knows, knows its tricks and tropes. 
Like, it's very obvious that while Seth wanted to end it and hated it, that Kevin Williamson at least seemed to have some fondness for it and some understanding of it. And even Wes didn't go too hard on it. Like, it does tear apart the tropes, but I think it's more about what slasher movies became rather than what they were, were overall. Like, that they just became a windmill, or not windmill. Why did I say windmill? I guess a grinding windmill. Like, just, like, a meat grinder inside a windmill, I guess. Sure. Trying to say that metaphor. I mean, they, they basically, you know, I, I feel like the, the slasher genre, especially by the mid-90s, before Scream came out, like, was kind of a, and I think you just said it, you know, a tired genre. Yeah, right, there's... like people knew what to expect, so Scream Inject, to me, injected some life back into it. Exactly. It backfired in some ways, I'm sure, with people trying to replicate it without understanding it, but also gave us more slashers. Slashers in the first place. Yeah. And it's the reason the genre survived, to me, past the 90s. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the teen Scream genre... Uh, you know, which kind of was, you know, kind of built on from Scream, you know, because after that you had, uh, I know what you did last summer, and, oh, sh shoot, you know, there's there's other movies like it. Yeah, I can't think of many other than that, but I know there were plenty, and there were plenty of covers ripping it off. Like, everyone wanted to be the next Scream, it seems like. Right. Um, but, like, I was... What were you going to say? I don't know what I was going to say. You go on. Okay. So, yeah. Um, Scream basically kind of brought back the uh, the slasher genre. And it's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, to briefly go over just kind of the general plot... Of Scream. Yeah, because we do it. Because I did go overboard last time and I going through the plots, but we're, we're figuring this out. Yeah. I'm not going to beat myself too much up over it. No, no, no. It's... Basically, Sidney Prescott was a, is a teenager in the town of Woodsboro whose mother, Maureen, died a year ago and she apparently sent his murderer. Right. And apparently, like, the guy was caught, but then a year later, like, in one of the most iconic opening scenes of all time, which we'll get to in a second, Casey Becker, one of her classmates, is murdered. Now Sydney has to try and figure out just who could be killing, and if it's one of the people around her, while also finding out she may not have been wrong about her who killed her mother. Uh, it's, like, simple enough, and also, because the killers are basically making their own slasher film in real life, it plays with a lot of the tropes, like they're playing into them, and there's the famous horror movie rule scene. Oh, yeah. With Randy towards the end, like no sex, no drugs, and of course Scream likes to play with all that. Never say you'll be right back, because you, you won't be. I'll be right back. Of course, that was a nice, like, misdirect. <laughs> but, like, that is a that is true, though. And they continue to play with that that sort of stuff out as the franchise goes on. I even liked uh, how in the fourth film they kind of revisit some of those rules, and they're like, "Well, no, it's you know it's completely different 
it's a new generation, you know, new rules. Oh, exactly. Like, like okay, we can talk about this thing franchise-wide now, because why not? Like, in the first one, there's the simple rules that, like, all horror movies abide by. Like, if you have sex, you're probably going to die. No booze. Yep. Um, and no, and no go, saying you'll be right back. And then the second one is, like, it's upgraded, like... Randy gives the sequel rules, which I don't remember all of, but like one of them is no one's safe, the gore is up, yep, and so's the body count, yep. All true. The third one kind of lost me there with its rule of trilogies. But I think and it's because they were trying to just have a definitive end to the Scream franchise. When horror films, as Randy himself says in his like video, will because sadly Randy dies in the second one, and we'll get to that death eventually. But like he talks about how the rules of trilogies, though some parts of it like are right, like finding out things you thought were real weren't, or like some big revelation, which they do with Maureen Prescott. Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing. And then the fourth, as Corey said, like, they bring in two new self-aware kids who name not have to look up. I have a character list here just in, just for that sort of thing, but... Yeah, I mean, even with the third film, like, one of the rules I remember was, uh... The... Anyone can die, even oh, the main yeah. character. I forgot about so, that. Like, even Sydney, says sorry, Sid. Like, she <laughs> doesn't, but that is an interesting how, like... That is, was kind of a cop-out, but I'm kind of glad they didn't simply because Scream 4 probably wouldn't have been the same with just the cast down to two people. And then the fourth one just kind of, like, upped gore. The old rules are no longer the same. Like, if you're gay or something, you might be able to survive. Mm -hmm. But, like, being a virgin, no longer a... And then also talking about fake-outs. Right. Like, apparently, and I only learned about this recently, like, the Friday the 13th remake had the fake-out ending of... It was, like, an apparently completely different slasher movie for the first half. And then... Corey just nodded, yes. <laughs> uh, I want to... I don't mean to go slightly off-topic, but going off of the fourth one, one of my favorite scenes, actually, is... I can't remember the actor's name. You, you you might be able to help me. He's the uh, the main star in Blackish. Uh, he was the cop. In... Anthony Anderson. Yeah, Anthony Anderson. Oh, I loved his character in that. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite scenes was uh, him and his uh, partner were in the cop car, and he's like, "I'll be. I'm going to do a search around the building. I'll be right back." He, he stops. He's like, "Wait a minute. You know, we're not supposed to say that." Uh, and his body's like, oh, I mean, you know, it, the rules are changed, you know, the, I mean, you could go out and then I'd be, I'd have my eyes gouged out and st tongue sticking out, uh, when you get back, you know, I mean, you never know. Like, yeah, like, before's <laughs> about the unpredictability while also just kind of poking fun at the Platinum Dunes remakes. Like, I don't think there are many other Halloween remakes, uh, other remakes by other companies with the exception of the Rob Zombie Halloween. Which I'm not looking forward to someday in the years to come. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... Fuckity yeah. fuck fuck. Did I get the dialogue down for Rob Zombie? Uh, sure. I, I don't... I, 
I th- I've seen two of his films, and I don't really remember him. All right, but, like, I did like the Deputy and uh, Perkins, but he's basically, like, Anthony, like, according to this list I have here, like, I brought up the TV Tropes character page, Anthony Perkins is basically Anthony Anderson playing himself, but in a cop uniform. That's okay, because I do like him, and... Like, I do, even if I had my issues with Blackish towards the end of my watching it, I still liked him on that. Still think he's a very good actor, and I'm glad he's found success. Oh, yeah. So he was a great part of that. Like, yeah, it's always meta. Like, in the fourth one, like, Randy spells out and scream, and scream, everyone's a suspect. He also starts screaming, which you had in your notes, which you didn't bring today, but you told me this, like, when we were discussing what we were going to talk about in our game plan, that you wrote down, why is he shouting in the video store? Why are we, or no, why are we shouting in the video store? Right. But that was funny. Like, he had good timing, and that was, like, that was entertaining. But. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, the rules are a constant in this series. As is the meta, like, commentary on horror movies. Like, the second one, we'll get into it more when we get there, but has, like, commentary on the affirmative action. The third one has commentary on post-Columbine and whatnot, since it was made after that, and the second one was impacted heavily by it. Mm Mm-hmm. And the fourth one has commentary on, like, the current teen and the genre of remakes and how they've, like, as Dewey puts it, because, like, at the beginning of that film, like, with four, their hand, some asshole hung up, possibly the killers hung up a bunch of ghost faces around town near where Sydney's having her book signing. And, like, he says, one generation's tragedy is the next generation's joke. Right. Which is true, we just kind of tend to forget about that stuff with time. Oh yeah, well, that's that's definitely a good commentary. Yeah, it has a lot of good commentary on this stuff. But getting back to the first film, because I don't want us to drift all around all four. Yeah, um, so the, something I wanted to mention, I think the first film, the first Scream film, has one of the best openings to any horror film ever uh the the way that it the way that it builds the tension the you know just how it's kind of subtle and everything at at the start but then you know he asks uh you know then who am i looking at or or something like that and you know really builds the tension uh and drew barrymore sells it in that scene like it's she is so great in that uh oh yeah she's amazing like she just and the reason she ended up in that role, she was actually going out for Sydney, but she just didn't have the time in her schedule for it. So she agreed to do like she agreed to do the first part, and that set off the series trend of having like a name actress of some kind be the first victim. Right. Like that even apparently carried over to the television series. Like Bella Thorne volunteered to do that simply because she knew it was a tr- big tradition. Okay. So, like, they usually have a fairly big name or a decent-sized name die. Yeah, because, like, I I remember that uh, the marketing for the first film was, like, pretty heavy on Drew Barrymore. So, 
Yeah, I didn't watch a lot of that, but like, yeah, apparently, I think I have at least seen the trailer, and it's like, yeah, she's shown pretty heavily in it. That's all from her one scene. Yeah, and I mean, and they mask it really well. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah, not to go on too much of a tangent, but like, I, I can only think of a couple of horror films with as, like, as iconic or maybe even more of an iconic opening where it'd be like. Uh, Jaws and the scene with the the girl swimming in the water and being taken under, uh, and also Halloween with Michael as a kid killing his sister. Oh yeah, like I watched Halloween for the first time, like last month. Okay, like that is a masterful opening. Like even when I knew, even if like by this point I know what's coming, we all know about Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. But even knowing that, it was just like. It's still masterful, like, because if you don't, even if you, like, know the gist of Halloween, if you don't know, like, about where he started or, like, Michael's backstory like I did, then that could still be a jolt to viewers years later. And even if you know Drew Barrymore's going to die, like, the scenes are just still well done. Like, her panic, her slow breakdown as Ghostface gets to her and her brutal death just moments away from her parents. And then, then just hanging her up, possibly by her organs. Yeah. Like, it's a masterwork, and you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Um, I also have to say, Scary Movie, the first film, parodies heavily on the first Scream. And it, I think, does it really well. Like, it's... Oh, yeah. Like, I haven't watched it in a while. The first one in a while was, it was a few years ago. But I remember, like, they had the first scene and, like... And they have, like, this way to death. <laughs> this sort of, Like, it does it well. Like, the first one and the third one has some good bits. But, like, I used to really like it when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Not so much anymore. But it does have good bits. And by good bits, I mean anything... Basically, just the Leslie Nielsen parts. Yeah. Though, like, I do like Anna Ferris a bit. She's just. I saw a fourth film in theaters, and I regret it. I regret it a lot. <laughs> and we'll get to the scary movie franchise at some point, but. Oh yeah, I don't want. I'm scared to, but we do have to at some point. Yep. But I mean, going going back to the first film, I just kind of had to mention that, like. As I was rewatching Scream, I just kept thinking of Scary Movie's approach to it, and I was just kind of chuckling to myself just because. Did that wreck your enjoyment of it at all? No, not not at all. Like it, in a way, complemented it. I wouldn't say it enhanced it. Oh yeah, just... and that, like I will admit their parody of, and we'll get to the second. We're not going to drift in the films too much, but since we're talking about Scary Movie anyway, their parody of the kill from the beginning of the second film. Eclipses the first just because they take it and run with just have the fridge logic of it. Right. So yeah, um, what? Uh, Go on. What? What is uh, something from the first film that you like? What do you think didn't work for the first film? And that's hard to say. I'd start with Matthew Willard. Okay. Like, now, here's my thing. I li- actually like Matthew Willard. He's decent on the show Good Girls. Going on. Like, he's not in a big role. He's the asshole husband who cheats on Christina Hendricks' character. 
But he does play something different, and he does show he has range. Instead of being the goofy comedy asshole who's in a bunch of stupid films. <laughs> I mean, I, Which is what he is here. Like, he's basically, like... He's not... And even then, he's not too bad. He's just kind of basically stews crony. And then with the reveal, though, he gets to let go and be really ham it up. But it works. Like, just because it shows he's a psychotic idiot. But it just works. Like, I, I liked him in uh, The Descendants... With, uh, oh, I forgot he was in that. Yeah. What did he play in that? He was the uh, he was the guy that his George Clooney's wife. Was oh yeah, I forgot he was. I didn't know that was him. He was really good in that. And I really liked him. Like I liked him in like even if the movies themselves aren't very good, I'll admit to that. I did like him in the live action Scooby Doo movies. I felt he got shaggy. Well, granted, it's not like that. It's that far out of his wheelhouse. But he played him well, mm-hmm. and in Mystery Incorporated, the TV show, which I highly recommend, really damn good, he got to do more, both comedic, like, he got to basically play Shaggy, but with an actually good script. So he got to really do more, and was good in that. He wasn't the one who got to show off the most, or went through the most, but he still had, he still showed he does a good Shaggy, it's just... In those movies, he wasn't great. Here, he's kind of annoying, but thinking back, he's not really in it enough to be too annoying. Like, he's in it a lot. And there's nice little hints to the fact that he's one of the killers. Yeah. Like, his, like, just being overly threatening with Stu. One of the best, something I didn't even notice until rewatch or reading about it, is him just going, like, way too into detail about how... How Casey probably died and Billy sh- quietly shutting him up. Yeah. Like he has the excuse of Sydney, who had her own mother die, probably doesn't want to hear that. But in hindsight, he just doesn't want him to give himself away. I mean, I actually did notice that upon rewatching uh, during that scene uh, when they are talking about Casey's death, like the interaction between Stu and Billy. Uh, it's it's very apparent that they are the killers once you know that they're the killers. I yeah. mean, like the way they threaten Randy, just like it's it's disguised well enough. Like they're teen douchebags, so the way they act beforehand, but after it, like that's something. Like I knew some of the, I got spoiled on a lot of the killers, but like with the exception of three, most of them, there's like subtle hints. Like not as many in Scream Three or Four. The four has some with Jill. Not a lot, but the other guy has more. But, like, both killers are, like, small, subtle hints, and that's part of what I like about the series. Mm-hmm. Like, with Billy, the first hint towards the two killers is, oh, well, it's Ghostface called in prison, but there's two giveaways that could still be him. That he had one phone call... And they don't know who he used it on. Now, like, he set up, like, that's a nice misdirect. Where, like, okay, he's obviously not the killer because they're setting him up like that. Like, Rod in Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, he's just supposed to be the douchebag who gets killed off fairly early. Mm-hmm. Well, Matthew Lillard's the comic relief, Casey. Or not, Kate. Uh, are you talking about Sydney's friend? Yeah, hold on. Uh... Yeah. 
I don't remember her name, but she was uh, Dewey's sister. Yeah, I'm looking it up, but it might take a second. There we go. But while I do, like they have like, but yeah, like they have care like the archetypes and they play with them. Like you wouldn't expect Billy simply because all the clues lead to him, right? But it turns out it is him. I mean, even Tatum. That's Tatum. Yeah, Rose McGowan's character, and she does a great job. It just like it's chilling, sad in hindsight because. This is what led to her working with Miramax in the first place and probably led to Weinstein's harassment of her and his trying to ruin her career. And I feel terrible about that. But she is good in this movie, and I don't hold it against Wes Craven and co. Because they didn't know at the time he was a sexually harassing monster. He's just getting started, I think. Uh, I don't know. And they might have, but they might have just had no power. Like, this wasn't, like, now or even a few years ago when they probably could have done something they just should have. It's more, like, I feel it's different because, yeah, I do feel it's different. It's, especially with the third film, which we'll get to, it's hard not to talk about talk about the fact Rose McGowan's in a film produced by Harvey Weinstein and not bring that up, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, she does great in this film. Like, she is, like, she's the peppy best friend, but there's more depth to her. Like, you get that she really cares about Sid. And she does put up a fight before she dies, even if she does the stupid try-to-get-out-of-a-cat-flat thing. <laughs> yeah. And, like, yeah, she looks good and everything, but it's more about, like, she has more personality. Like, she fills the... Oh, she's the sex pot who's probably going to get killed role. But she has a lot of depth and warmth. And you really feel terrible when she dies simply because you she care about Sydney. It feels even worse knowing that Stu, Stu, while he's not the killer, like Skeet Ulrich, even if this wasn't confirmed by anyone else, I'm willing to go with it just because it makes sense, was the one who killed her. And, like, there was apparently, like, even a moment of remorse where he just, like, didn't mean for her to go that way. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. Did you, whenever you were watching it again, did you try and figure out which, uh, who, which ghost face was which character? I didn't, and I should have. Like, like, some are easier to figure out than others. Right. Like, I'm pretty sure it would, like, for the killing, I think they both were there when Casey died. But I only think that because Ghostface suddenly moved really fast and got to her. Yeah. So I think they were both there for that. Though I'm not sure which one was on the phone and which one killed Steve. And Like, I'm not sure which is which, but I'm pretty sure they were both there. Yeah. Like, that is something fun to figure out right now, though. Like, the one who attacked Sydney at her house, that's very obviously Billy. Like, because he was there, but Stu... Or to me, that is obviously Billy simply because the timing synced up too well because he came in right after. And I think he was... I think it is actually Stu, and here's why. Because it was literally seconds after Ghostface was at her door That's that Stu or uh, Billy was at her window. I, I think they were both there, but the one that was chasing her up the stairs was Stu. 
I think so. That actually makes more sense to me. Like, I'll switch opinions, but that's just because your expression makes more sense. That Billy, my guess is Billy did the call that time because he had the, his cell phone on him. Uh-huh. Or he might have just had his cell phone anyway. Or I think he might have just had his cell phone anyway. For all we know, he could have set up his own getting sent to prison to take suspicion off him. Like, I'm not sure. It could have just been a wrinkle in the plan because it seems like Stu hastily called him. Mm -hmm. But given that, like, later in the film, film, he sets up his own murder just to fuck with Sidney's head, it wouldn't, or really wouldn't put it past him to put him in jail and then have him come out just to mess with her and take heat off both of them. Yeah. Also, before we move on from that scene, I'd just like to say that the bit where, while it sets him up for some suspicion... Even though I never really, even if I hadn't known who the killers were, never really buy, would buy for a second do he was ever one of the killers in either film. <laughs> but, like, when Sydney answers the door, like, she screams that it's revealed Dewey's just holding the mask, and he does. Like, David Arquette is a genuinely funny guy. Yeah. I mean, that, that scene is hilarious. Yeah, where uh, he just goes, <laughs> like, his expression helps. Yeah. Like I, I think that's one of the, one of the funniest moments of all four films. Yeah. Though another funny film moment is like the one where, like it's also tense because you don't know if Ghostface is gonna go after him. Like the one where Randy's like at the screen and saying, "He's right behind you." While Ghostface is like that was both a brilliant moment and really funny. Uh-huh. He's right behind you, stupid. Well, and also when he's, like, giving out the horror movie films or rules earlier, like when he's saying no drinking and he holds up a beer. <laughs> like, Randy, I really liked what I did here. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a fun character. Yeah, I thought, thought Jamie Kennedy did a great job. Like, all the acting's great, like... Like, the, Nev Campbell, like, really carries the entire franchise, like, all of or not franchise, since the TV series is nothing to do other than having Ghostface. Mm-hmm. But, like, Nev as Sydney is just good in all four films, but especially here, where she's, like, dealing with her mother, and, like, the situation, like, basically, Billy and Stu killed his mother, killed her mother, I don't know why I said he but killed her mother, and then framed Cotton Weary, like this guy we never see, like we see for a second. We'll get more into him, because he's in the, in, when you get to the sequel. Like, he's played by Lev Schreiber, so it's not like he's played by a small actor, but he just has like a cameo in the first one. Right, he's just on the, on the TV. But I thought that was a good element, because like, yeah, she sent an innocent man to jail, but she did so because she thought, oh, her mother couldn't possibly cheat on her father when it turns out, especially by the climax, that she'd done so quite a bit. Uh-huh. So, so that's understandable. Oh, yeah. I don't... Uh, it's just because we are on a time constraint and we do want to get to the other films, um, you know, is there anything else that you want to say about the first film before? Oh yeah, on? like there is still more. Like I know we're on a time constraint. There is still more to talk about. Like Courtney Cox is great. Mm-hmm. Like she's great in all of them, but she's great here in the scene. Okay, that's another funny part where she's like Gail, where she punches Gail in the face, and then afterwards Tatum's like, "Bam, bitch went down." Yeah. Or would you like the? 
I'll send you a copy. Bam, bitch went down. <laughs> like, that was funny. Like, again, that's why I like Rose McGowan as Tatum. And, like, something we do need to talk about before we move on is the climax itself, which is just right. poetry. Part of it's the fact that the whole scene just was apparently a slog of a shoot because they had to shoot only at night. And it, like, was basically the entire third act of the movie was that house party. But I think it paid off to that third act's just great, from Tatum's terrible death to, like, the part where Sydney, like, basically Stu and Randy are both pleading their innocence, and she just basically slant, even though she should have let Randy in at least, because she saw, like, him being menaced by Ghostface. She slams the door behind him. They reveal that Billy's not only alive, but when Sydney gives him the gun, he just coldly shoots Randy. Like, every part of it is a masterwork. Oh, yeah. And I do think, though, I didn't... I'll be honest, I didn't like Skeet Ulrich's through a lot of the film. I, like, what did you think of him, Corey? I mean, he was okay. You know, just, he was fine for his role, but I, I think uh, both Lillard and Ulrich, uh, by the the climax of the film, like, like they, yeah. they really brought... They they did their best work in those scenes. Yeah, like, before that, they're just kind of playing in their stereotypes. So once the reveal comes, and, like, there's some great, con- like, that's a, like, I won't point out every great colony moment, obviously, or we'll be here all day, but there is one more that we have to point out that was an accident. Like, where he accidentally, like, during the climax where they're going after Sydney, accidentally hits him with the phone. Ow, you hit me with the phone, you dick! That actually happened. Like, Skeet Ulrich actually hit him with the phone, and they wisely decided to keep it in. <laughs> and I also liked, like, like, Stu, like, after, like, and one of the most badass final girl moments I've seen, Sydney picks up the voice recorder and says she called the cops, which she did. She wisely did, so she basically spoiled their plan and played ghost's face to them, even using the outfit. Mm-hmm. Like, that is fucking awesome. I just like Stu's, like, and this was thrown in by Matthew Lillard saying, my mom's, my mom's gonna kill me. Yeah. Like, it was just awesome. Oh, yeah. The first film's awesome. I think, like, oh, also Henry Winkler was in it. Like, that's something I don't want to get on a tangent on. Like, he was killed just because, like, they needed... Like, apparently, like, he was killed due to studio mandate because they, like, noticed there's a long stretch of the film where no one dies. But, they, but like, Kevin Williamson welcomed it and Craven welcomed it because it turned out that due to that, it got all the uh, extraneous teens away from the party for the climax. Yeah. I think we just about covered it, like... Oh, and I will say that, and this is a franchise-wide thing, so I don't mind mentioning it here, but I have to kind of start it here since it's different in each film. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds song Red Right Hand is fucking awesome. Like, just one last thing, then we'll move on to Scream 2. Because you're right, we are on a deadline. But it's like... Yeah, Your no, own microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan, designed and directed by his red right hand. Yeah, that's that's definitely a great uh, motif throughout the films. Yeah, yeah. It's, like awesome, and they even doing like a unique version for three. Which I think is okay, not as good as the original, but still pretty good. But we'll talk about that more when we get to screen three. But first, since I blathered enough on about the first film. 
Scream 2. Yep, uh, came out a year later, 1997, and uh, had some production issues. Like, originally, I think her friend, like her friend Cece, I think was, uh-huh. or not Cece, Howie, I'm not sure which one it was. Yeah, Howie. I was afraid of getting it wrong. Like, her friend Howie was supposed to be one of the killers, along with the camera, Gail's new camera guy. Really? Yeah, apparently. Like, I don't know for sure, but, like, apparently it's been around that that happened, but due to the script leaking, they changed it to Mrs. Loomis and Mickey, which was fine, but I think I can get that it was kind of changed, but they still had enough foreshadowing for the two that did end up being the killers that it worked. So it didn't ruin the film changing it, but it is kind of interesting to note they had different killers in mind, and, like, script changes happened frequently, which wound up in the third one as a thing. Mm-hmm. All right, so... First brief plot summary, as always. Like, again, I'm not going to be like a Wayne's World review where I'm going like full hog on it, but I will like add in these just so you have a frame of reference if you haven't seen the films. The most of you probably have, just in case. Yeah. Basically, it's a few years later. Sydney's going to college, not too far from Westboro. She and Randy are still friends. She's got a new boyfriend, new friend. She's picked her life back up together. And Rand, like, Dewey stops by frequently while Gail went back to her bitchy ways and wrote a book. And when she dies to do an ambush for an interview with Sydney, gets punched in the face again. <laughs> then a new killer starts up trying to make a sequel, killing, going after both our heroes a.k.a. the survivors of the first one, as well as anyone with a name from the first killer. Which I thought was a clever little, like, clever little reveal. Mm-hmm. The, uh... Also, her book, uh, Gail Weathers' book, was adapted into a movie called Stab. Which... Yeah, okay, good point, Corey. I'm glad I didn't forget to mention that, because that is a surprisingly important element throughout the next three, two films. Right. And through this one. Uh, and I mean, even the, the opening for the film is at the premiere of the first Stab film, which is basically, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's based on the Woodboro killings from the first film of Scream. And like the Stab film we see is basically a shockier version of the original Scream. Right. Like there's a nude scene for Casey. And then, like, and I like this brick joke here. Like, they probably didn't intend for a sequel, so they probably, like, like, they probably didn't intend for a sequel. But, like, in the first film, like, Sydney, like, when they're talking about who might play them in the movie, like, Sydney's like, I'd anyone but Tori Spelling. And then Tori Spelling shows up playing Sydney, like, not in the film itself, since we only really see the opening scene. But. Also, fun note, and this was referenced in Scream 4 when they show this footage again during one scene. The footage was shot by, for Stab, was shot by Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. I, uh, I remember reading that somewhere. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's not really something we'll get into heavy. There's not really a lot to talk about. I don't know why he did it, but that was... But, like, he was also one of the directors offered Scream. But, like, I just found that interesting and hilarious. Yeah. 
so what'd you think of the opening for Scream 2? Oh, well, that was okay. I thought the boyfriend character was kind of annoying, but the death itself of Jada Pinkett's character was just real. It was really disturbing. Like, even if she hammed it up a bit, it works simply because, like, basically her character, like, her boyfriend, like, everyone's given a ghost face costume, which is just asking for it, honestly. Uh, yeah, also, it's like, are you, what, uh, okay, I, I understand it's a different time, it was the 90s, but what, who, who would have thought that would have been okay to wear masks at a, a movie theater, especially at something that was based on a true story? Yeah, like you're just, as I said, you're just asking for it. Like, that's some of the stab films that baffles me throughout all of these. It's just that's based on a murder. Like, it somehow become like, I get they're doing meta context, so I'm willing to forgive it. But, like, the first three are based on a murder. Like, the third one, we'll get into this more in a second, was ba- is, like, about the making of Stab 3. Which was originally original script till the director started killing everybody. So apparently, like in four, it's gone up to seven movies, with the fifth one being the worst about time travel, <laughs> which I didn't think was a funny gag. And apparently, a jab, possibly, it's hard to tell, a jab at Craven himself, because he apparently pitched a time travel nightmare on Elm Street movie at one point. <laughs> Well, that's like it. Like with Elm, like that's another thing. Like about one, we'll go back to two. I'm not going to backtrack us a lot, but I forgot about that. That apparently, like there is this jab at the Nightmare on Elm Street films. That all the ones after the first one sucked, and Wes Craven was originally going to get rid of it for being too mean until he realized the self jab nature of it, mm-hmm. and decided wisely to keep it. So yeah, so that's something I also can admire about Craven. Besides his direction in these films, which is impeccable, and it really shows here where the kills get ramped up. Like again, while there's a lot of fridge logic, both in the existence of Stab itself and in the whole costume thing, which again, even before things like the Aurora shooting at the Dark Knight Rises and all the various and terrible mass killings recently. It still just seems like a bad idea on paper to give out, both from a financial sense and from a someone kill people in this costume sense to give everyone a ghost face costume. Right. Like, I would have been fine if it was just a bunch of people wearing ghost face outfits because the first film, and that's part of why a ghost face mask was chosen, because it's a common Halloween mask. So it would have been more simple to me if you just had a bunch of people wearing ghost face costumes because, well, it's that easy to get. Instead of them handing them out, just asking for what happened. But I will say, despite the fridge logic, like, the kill itself is fine. It just goes on a bit long, long, and just really... But, like, the film does, like, reference, like, the moving on of technology. Like, there's more cell phones around. Because that's something, again, we forgot to mention. I mentioned this only because it's important to this film. Like, in the first film, cell phones weren't really a thing yet. And Billy having one automatically marked him for suspicion, which is funny today. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the second film, one of the most important scenes where Randy dies has him following the killer on a cell phone, which that death is also one of the best in the series. Just, like, 
the tension and is eventually being pulled into Gale's own van by Ghostface and just carved to shit. Yeah. Like, it is just brutal. It's a well-done main character death. And while I miss Randy and his presence hurts, his lack of being there hurts the third film a bit, I think. The fourth, since they were able to do, due to the reboot theme, they were able to have substitutes for him, so it was fine. Yeah. But I also think it was still well done and still a necessary part of the plot to lose Randy. And he, honestly, out of the three, like, he's, like, Gail still had to complete her character arc. Arc. Dewey was just, he couldn't lose Dewey. And Sydney was the main character. So three of us, I can see why Randy, despite being, like, the icon of the rules and everything, would be the one you'd get rid of. Mm-hmm. Like, I had to jump into that scene, but just, like, I was just talking about, like, and another scene I like, even if it's kind of a weird one, is, like, as the investigation's worn on, like, some of the killings. Like, that, this is something I like, because it at least gives Sydney an interest. Thank you. Corey just turned my hair on. God. I mean, it's getting sweltering in here. Yep. Yeah. <sighs> okay, enough <laughs> masturbating about the air. The point is, is, like, Sydney takes an interest in acting in this film. Yeah. And that there's a there's a pretty cool moment where Yeah, that's what I was got to get to you going. Oh, oh uh she's uh doing a performance. It's I think it's a rehearsal for a stage production of I, I forget which show. Yeah, like she's playing Cassandra and there's a bunch of people wielding knives. Like she and Nev Campbell does a good job like selling it and I forgot who played her acting her teacher, but I really liked him. Yeah. But, and one of the, the cooler moments is where she's kind of, you're not sure if she's losing her mind or if the ghost, ghost face is literally right there on stage with her. And, you know, it's kind of basically chaos where there's a bunch of like, actors wearing masks yeah, like and robes. A, like, yeah, like it's for the scene, like where they're about to strike her and they're all surrounding her and dancing around. Then suddenly someone in a robe and a ghost face mask shows up. And it's like they said, like Corey said, you don't know if she's just, like, her sanity understandably slipping a bit under the stress, and she just hallucinated him, or one of the ghost face was actually, actually there trying to kill her. And it just works, because it's just, like, both the trippiness of it and just the horror of being in a crowd of people where you could get stabbed at any time they'd think it was just part of the show until it was too late. Like, it's just really well done psychological horror. Oh, yeah. Like, it's really, like, it's probably my favorite sequence of the second film. How it's, like, close second is Randy's death. My, one of my favorite scenes, actually, for the second film is uh, the scene where uh, I think it's Gail. She's in a sound booth. Oh, the sound booth. Yeah, it's Gail. Yeah, and uh, Dewey is outside of the sound booth, and she can't hear him. And Ghostface shows up and stabs Dewey. Like guys, pounds him against the glass. Yeah, like just smashes David Arquette into it with the blood and everything. Like it's violent, but it's also really damp. Like that's something I like. Even if I have my issues with Scream Two, which of course, as I've said, we'll get to. 
I will say that the kills are a lot better. Like, the first one had good kills, don't get me wrong. Especially the opening kill, which is the best of the series. Not that the others are bad, it's just a masterwork. Mm-hmm. But, like... The second one, I think it just adds a lot due to the sequel escalation theme. It adds a lot of style to it. Like, the only one I think was kind of dumb is where, like, Ghostface... Well, it's cool at first, like, where Ghostface ambushes them in a car... But then one of the cops stands outside of the car and says, get out of the car instead of just shooting him. You know, this guy just stabbed your partner, and you know that he has to be at least one of the people responsible for the murders. And then it gets dumber, like he crashes the car. Like, I think that was Mickey, or I think it was supposed to be Mickey in that one. I'm not sure if it was Mickey or Mrs. Loomis. But he smashes, oh, and, like, that's the killers. Mickey is the friend of... Sydney's boyfriend and Mrs. Loomis was pretending to be a reporter named Debbie Salt as part of a revenge plan for Billy because she's fucking nuts like her son. Yeah. Okay, back on point. They crash the car and instead of like Sydney, like after they get her friend out, Sydney like goes back and then Killface shows up and kills her friend who stayed behind. Instead of unmasking him when you had him right there with a friend right next to you to I mean, pull you away from him. You had to crawl literally over him to get out of the car. You could have had, yeah, like you could have pulled off his mask then. Like that's one of the few moments in the series entirely where it's just like Tatum's thing somewhat stupid. Like, her trying to call out of a cat flap, though apparently they had to bolt Norris McGowan in there simply because she actually did fit. Oh, yeah. Like, that. that is funny to me, but, like... <laughs> the, uh... But, like, that is the... One, I mean, well, okay, there's a stupider moment, but it is one of the stupidest moments in the franchise and when it feels like a Friday the 13th movie. None of those movies are terrible. They're goofy, but something goofily enjoyable. At least the third one was for me. But, like, at this, well, like, it felt that level of stupid. Like, a character acting against their better nature. Like, I get, Sydney had a good point, but again, you could have had her take the mask off. Yeah. Like, it's just bad writing from a film that's otherwise damn good. Like, I... It, it is kind of a, a tense scene, just because he, at any moment he could wake up, but at the same time, like, literally just take the mask off. Yeah, like, that was the one problem with it. Like, them crawling through is actually really tense. It's just my only, my only real problems were the cop thing, which... I'm on the let's slide because it's funny, stupid. Like, it doesn't fit the screen films. Like, the fact that you hold a gun, like, don't get out of the car. What did you think was going to happen, you idiot? <laughs> like, I hate to overly focus on... You know what? No, I don't. I love to focus on something stupid and minor. Because this is just... You... Shoot him! I get that cops aren't supposed to shoot first. In theory, a lot of cops in practice are idiots. They've killed a lot of innocent people. <laughs> but in this case, you are facing a serial killer. It is okay to shoot. Shoot him. You, you deserve to die for that one. 
I I know it's cruel to say someone deserves to die. But a, this is a fictional character. I don't think he even had a name. And B, he was an idiot. He stood in front of a car that the ghost face had the keys to and thought threatening him with a gun would stop the sociopath. <laughs> what do you think? What would you think if that actually worked? He points a gun at him. Uh, Ghostface just raises his hands like, oh, I'm done. I'm done, everybody. My partner still Takes out. off his mask. It, it was a joke. It was a prank. I was totally not. God, <laughs> God stab you, motherfucker. And then Sydney runs him over. <laughs> it just like, you're right, Corey. It would have been even funnier if he'd just gotten out or at least faked it. And then stabbed him anyway. Like, that that's one of the only ways this could go. Either he fakes it and stabs the crap out of you, or he runs you over. <laughs> but you're right, it would have been funny if he didn't even stab him. He's just like, eh, scheme done, I get my trial anyway, bitches. <laughs> Not guilty, insanity. <laughs> uh, any proof of that? Well, I did not run over that cop when I had the chance. Sir, were you really that stupid? I thought it worked, and it did. Do not question my method, sir. <laughs> so, let's talk about the elephant in the room, and that is Jerry O'Connell in Scream 2. Who, like, and here's the thing. I haven't seen much with him. I'm going to have to letterbox up what his resume actually is. In fact, I'll try. Sometimes it doesn't like to work for me. But I will say this. Like, he's real. Like, I've watched the film, the animated film, The Death of Superman. Like, while I have heard in the one film I saw from earlier lends credence to this, that the DC animated universe through their DTV movies, direct-to-video, got started on a wrong foot. I do think it's gotten really good. Like, I haven't watched Suicide Squad Hell to Pay, but both Titan Titans movies are pretty good. And I watched Death and especially the Judas Contract, and getting to Jerry O'Connell, he's really good in Death of Superman. Like, he makes a good Superman. So he's not a bad actor, or at least not a bad voice actor. But my God, in this film, he's a piece of cardboard. And it's not, you know what? Like, I was hard on him as an actor first when I was first thinking about this first. But he, it's because Derek is Sidney's new boyfriend. That's Jerry O'Connell in this film. And he is just basically this, like, frat guy. Like, he's charming. He's perfect face. He gets in the way of her and Randy. The Randy. Like, his situation, he's unnecessarily bitter about it, because he had a crush on Sydney in the first film, and then now she'd moved on to this other guy while he was presumably being respectful and not asking her out right after she murdered her boyfriend. Right. Like, how would that even go? <laughs> uh, I know it's soccer time, but you want to make it out? Like, just... Like, he wasn't being a dick about it, but he was still on some nice guy entitlement. How when, Scream should have ended. <laughs> Ah. So, we want to make out. I just killed my boyfriend. I shot him in the head. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we got to take a quick commercial break, but we will be right back. Death tastes better with Mentos fresh mint. Mentos, the stab maker. 
And we're back. So we were on Jerry O'Connell before we realized, oh shit, we have to. We're about to hit commercial break. But like Derek, character Jerry plays is just so like uncharismatic. Like he's basically just this handsome frat guy, and like it's just Sydney's like this arts girl. And she's kind of moody. It just doesn't fit. Like it. Like I get why she'd want someone like him after dating. Dating Stab Doctor Stabby McStabberson, but I question, or in someone who looks like he only, like he just came from from an all-day fish concert every day of his life. <laughs> Honestly, it gets, but I get that. But at the same time, Derek just does have a lot of personality. There's some good stuff there, like when she. Like, thinks of him being a murderer again because of her trauma. Or, like, when she breaks up with him temporarily. But then he just becomes massively unlikable because after she breaks up with him partway into the film because she doesn't want him to get hurt. Which, okay, that superhero trope has never really made sense to me. Like, how is them knowing your identity unless the villain finds out they know somehow? Like, and that's a big if, going to protect them. They're still going to be in danger be, danger anyway. They're still not going to be in any less danger unless you make out while you're in costume, and that'd be a stupid move. <laughs> like Spider-Man, at least when he did it with Mary Jane in the first film, even if that's mildly creepy, because she didn't know it was Peter Parker under there. But like even when he did that, at least he was doing it like in an alleyway around unconscious bugs. Right. Like here, it's just like, it's not like the killer's going to let up on him just because you broke off with him, but it's also understandable because she's going through a lot. She just doesn't have the time for him, and she, even if she was trying to, you know, protect him, and he's like, oh, we should st I'm going to huff off and be an asshole because you think I might have murdered someone even though you have severe trauma, which I get PTSD and stuff wasn't as well understood, and even now people think, oh, that's just a soldier thing. It's not. It really isn't. But, so I get that part to a degree, but he still comes off as an asshole for basically walking off in a huff and being mad she broke up with him when she's just trying to protect his ass. Mm -hmm. And, like, when he gets killed, which, like, Mickey, the other killer, fucks with her head for a second, like, saying he's his accomplice for just outright shooting him, which that, we'll get to the climax in a second, but... That's something I liked about it, is that they actually used the gun more this time, whereas in the first one, Billy just used it to threaten them and then forgot about it. Yeah. Whoopsie daisies. <laughs> but, like, and then there's the other reason I don't like him. One of them is how he acted, like he wouldn't leave Sydney alone, which, I guess she's probably pushing him away a bit, too, so I get him trying to help. But at the same time, it's not really helping well, there's two. One is due to the scene we're about to talk about, about which baffled both of us. There, he gets like punished because he gave her his Greek letters or something. I don't know. I was praying for death by the end of that scene. Scene. So I just like basically his Greek brothers put in, in Portia de Rossi who plays it. Like basically early on, they try to get Sydney to pledge, and that's also when Sarah Michelle gets bumped off, which is a good scene. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some real, like, before we get to Jerry O'Connell's musical number, yes, that's a thing that happened. Like, basically, and, like, real quick to finish my thought, because I tend to drift, 
basically they tie him to a star, and then Killface later brings him into the theater to fuck with Sydney. Like, for the climax. They have the climax at the theater Sydney's been working in, and that's because Gail and Dewey were also there because they were working on the case. Yeah. Which is when that sound booth thing happened. Like, well, part of it, in a really creepy scene, again, hate to get off topic, but might as well cover it while I'm here. Like, they find, they're, like, going over the footage because they find the footage of the day Dick Randy died. And then on one of the TVs is playing footage of the killer watching everyone that he killed. Like, that was really good. But back on point, like, they tie him to a star and it's a contrived way to get him there for the climax. Why is because... Okay, let me set the scene. May I, Corey? Oh, yeah, go I ahead. haven't spoken for a while. I'm trying to be an equal partner in this. Oh, you're good. Okay. Setting the scene here. Jerry O'Connell, like, and Sydney are like... She's mad at him for some reason. I forget why. And I really don't care. Or, oh, because she thinks he might be a murderer or something. Because Mickey put it in her head. Which I think is a good bit of foreshadowing, but I'm just stalling at this point. <laughs> like, there were good foreshadowing bits. Like, it was shown he could be a suspect earlier and he wasn't. But I really need to get this elephant out of the room. This car is cramped enough as is. <laughs> okay. So... She, he's a little she's doesn't not sure about him and he starts singing I think about myself sign or hold on I'll pull up the lyrics well I do like that was a great misdirect with Mickey yeah this scene easily in my opinion the worst scene in any of the S scream films oh definitely like just I Like, all at once I wake up from something keeps not... Before I go insane, I think I love you. And what am I so afraid of? And keep in mind, he sings this in front of the cafeteria. Jumps on the table going, I think I love you. You know, string up from my bed. Words, I, I pull up the lyrics. It's just hard to think about this scene without laughing. Like, I think I love you, but what was I so afraid of? Sure love, there is no cure for... Like, he shakes it off key, and it's just... Like, it's not a bad song, but my God, it does not... Like, it belongs in a romantic comedy, not this. Yeah. Like, with Vicky, like, yeah, you do that, bro. I'm gonna <laughs> not shoot you later, yeah. <laughs> and, like, he nearly kicks Portia de Rossi in the face. Like, she doesn't do much. She's wasted in this film. She's just one of the vapid. Yeah. But, like, yeah, he nearly kicks Portia de Rossi in the face. He just dances on top and then gives her his letters. And there's just this big romantic moment. And I'm just praying for death. But death won't come. <laughs> death won't, wouldn't come, Corey. And, like, Corey, tell him about your notes. Because... Yeah, uh, so in my notes, I literally wrote, what the fuck is this movie? Like, he sent those to me after he watched it, and I agree wholeheartedly. What the fuck is this? Like, it's hilariously stupid, I'll grant it that, but it doesn't fit in a scream film at all. It's just, like, I, 
I forgot about it when it came up in the film. Because, like, I'd seen Welch's reviews long ago. Well, I'd forgotten a lot about the films. Like, I remembered him singling the scene out, but I'd forgotten about it again. Uh-huh. Apparently, I'd blocked it out because I just... <laughs> like, just... Why is this in Scream? This is fucking Scream. Why is there a music... Mid-90s rom-com Gen X musical number? I don't know. Because it was the 90s and they can get away with that. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough, Corey. That was why. And they, but they didn't know. It's just like, hangs like a wet fart over the film and made me hate (laughs) Derek more. And I already was just like, it made me go from mild dislike of him to, oh my God, please die already. Just, it, it's stupid, but it's masterfully stupid. Because you have a musical number in the middle of a Scream film. Now, granted, with the current Hollywood movie movie craze, I would like to see Scream the musical. Like They made one for Heathers. They made one for Mean Girls. <laughs> like, I heard about that one the other day. But I, remember. I, I, would, I would go see that. I would, too. Like, they made Evil Dead into a musical, and that was fucking awesome. Like, I yeah. only heard the music to it. Well, me and Corey were on a ride to go see see Black Panther at the Legends. Yeah, like, yeah, he introduced yeah. me. I'm grateful. Like, you can make a great, funny Scream musical. Well, still, I mean, it'd be tense and dramatic. Like, do Evil Dead the musical. Just go all in. Like, make fun musicals, too, if you want. The show opener, uh... Do you like scary movies? Do you like scary movies? Funk <laughs> soul revival number for no fucking reason. <laughs> like, I do actually want to see a screen musical, because why the fuck not? If they're going to make everything else, we've only got one horror musical. I'd also like to see, like, Friday the 13th, the musical, if I don't like it, just for a rendition of. He's back, the man behind the mask. He's back, the man behind the mask. I'd love to see a Nightmare on Elm Street musical, too. As long as Freddy doesn't rap or use the power glove. Uh, <laughs> the, uh... Or if he does rap, just have it be like Hamilton. I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, the room where it happens. Bitch, I want to be in the room. I want to be in your dreams when it happens. Dreams when it happens, dreams when it happens. I want to kill you in your dreams when it happens, dreams when it happens. My God and God we trust. I got to do that right. My God and God we trust, but they never really know what got discussed. I just stabbed him in the back. So, something, uh, something happens. For this Scream musical, uh, there should be a love ballad. Oh, good. Uh, with, about uh, Stu being hit in the head by, with the phone. You hit me in the head with a phone, you dick. I thought I loved you, but then you hit me in the head with the phone, you dick. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah uh, so we've got about 50 minutes left uh, we need to kind of wrap up Scream 2 
Um, yeah, like, let's talk about the climax. Now we're done talking about Scream, the musical, which we will definitely be writing now. <laughs> I will... I, I will be more than happy to produce this. You go ha- you have fun writing that. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, well, I work on my hit Broadway musical. Yeah, we don't really have a lot of time left, so let's, let's move on to the climax of Scream 2, because there's really not much more to talk about. Like, Sarah Michelle Deller's death was good. We talked about most of the deaths. Yeah. Okay, there is one thing to talk about. I know we're short on time, but like I'd like to talk about Gail's character development. Okay. Because it is important to talking about three and four. Uh, Gail really grew as a character. Like she goes from like in the first film, she's kind of a bitchy reporter. She doesn't care about much people, but she does have a heart of gold and that she does want to get caught and we're exonerated and stop these killings. Yeah. And she does get an awesome moment at the end where all... Well, at first, like, in a nice bit of reality, she forgets to turn off the safety on the gun she steals from the boys and gets taken down. But then she returns at the last moment to kill Stu. I remember the safety that time, bitch. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. That should be a song in our musical. (laughs) I remember the safety that time, bitch. Like an angelic choir. (laughs) Okay, but, like, in this film, she sleds back a bit. She tries to ambush Sydney in the interview with Cotton Weary. He's a character this time. And, like, I like the idea of him just trying to get exonerated and wanting his 15 minutes of fame, but he comes off as kind of an asshole. Like, I get him wanting to get his life back together. I get him wanting fame, and he does deserve something since Sydney did wrongfully accuse him. But he just sort of creepily confronts her in a library, and then the police just sort of assume he's a murderer for no discernible reason. Like, they just assume he's a murderer because he was accused of murder. Uh-huh. Even though there's no real reason to suspect him for what he... Because he needs Sydney alive to have that interview with her. Right. So he has no real motive to kill her other than possible revenge. So he does have a motive... I guess, but it doesn't make sense with the way he's been acting. So he just kind of mocks the police, and I'm on his side during that, because he's kind of mocking them, but, like, Gail even suspects him. Like, you feel bad for him, at the same time, he just sort of hassles her in the library, but Gail's grown. Like, even, like, after her first scene ambushing Sydney, and after Randy's death, she realizes she's wrong. There's a really touching scene where she legitimately goes to Dewey and wants to solve this for its own sake. And, like, Dewey grows, too, because in the first, he's kind of goofily infatuated with her, but after she writes, like, a terrible, like, bumbling cop right up of him in her book on the events, the one Stab's based off of, mm-hmm. he just tears into her, and that's part of what starts to get her character development. And they have good chemistry. I mean, they were married at the time. Like, Courtney Cox and David Arquette aren't now, but they were married at the time, I think, or at least dating by Scream 2. Yeah. And it shows. Yeah. Like, they have good chemistry, and I'm glad to see them together at the end. Like, we'll get more into their relationships in the next few films. And now I've gotten that out of the way and caught out of the way. The climax is decent. Yeah. Not as good as the first, but, like, Mickey's reveal, I think, is one of the best moments of the film. Like, where he fucks with Sydney's head, where he reveals it, and it's revealed to be someone who was there with her the whole time. Like, not a close friend, like, not as close as, say, Billy or Stu in the first film, but it still works. And then, like, before I knew going in it was going to be Mrs. Loomis, 
and I'm glad it's crap. I can't remember her name. Uh, Lori Metcalf. Lori Metcalf, and I love her. Loved her on Roseanne. She was great on the Connors this week. She is just awesome, and oh, she yeah. was amazing in Lady Bird, where she oh, got yeah. her Oscar nomination. So she was good in this. She's just kind of playing play crazy eyes Pamela Voorhees XP. It was just sort of like it was okay. Like I do think it's a bit of a stretch, but I think the Miss Loomis reveal was worth it just for how it's revealed. Like she comes in and like I was thinking earlier, like, okay, how did she not recognize that this was her ex-boyfriend who tried to kill her mom? Then I realized they never met. And unlike the next film, which I will get to, fucking get to on how stupid they did that, here, that reveal was actually well done, where it's like, the only reason Gail didn't recognize her, she had a lot of work done, even though she'd done work on the book, so how they didn't recognize her made sense. And, like, both their motives are nice commentaries on moral guardians, especially at the time. Like, Mickey wants to, basically wants to be caught, and have this big trial and blame the media so you can get like parent activist like the parent activist group at the time that was really big. I forgot what he mentioned. To, and Johnny Cochran to represent him. That's like good commentary on all the celebrity trials at the time and all the bullshit scapegoating of video games and movies. Uh-huh. Which has always been bullshit. And I think the film shows that that it or, like, even the first film mocks this. Like, when Sydney mentions it might be the movies, it's like there's actually a great line from Billy where it's like, movies don't make Psycho Sid. They make Psychos more creative. Like, that's the truth. They may be inspired by this stuff, but there has to be something deeply messed up in your head or something wrong with you to want to kill people. Like, in the way a serial killer does. Right. And, like, just, she just doesn't, like, she's nuts and doesn't accept. She's not the best villain. I've heard the reveal get a lot of flack. And while the initial reveal works after, it's just sort of okay. But I think it would have been weaker had it not been Lori Metcalf, who just sells the hell out of it. Yeah. I do think they're, like, it doesn't have quite the strength of, like, the Billy and Stu reveal. But it's a good finale, partly because Sydney uses her, like... And her being in theater was just sort of mentioned in this film and not in the first. But in the first, she was under enough stress it made sense we never learned what she was into in high school. And after school events were likely suspended due to all the killing. Right. So it made sense that we didn't know, but it added depth to her and allowed for this cool theater climax where she uses a lot of the props from the play to basically help bring down Miss Loomis. As well as a cool moment where, like, after Mickey springs up, she shoots Miss Loomis in the head just to be sure. Like, it is really, like, it is a good climax. And overall, that's really Scream 2 in a nutshell. It's not as good as the first one, but still pretty damn impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. Like, it's, uh, it's not as good as the first. Uh, I don't... It's it's not like a, a favorite of mine by any means, but I I'd I still think watch it's, it again with the first one. Yeah, like I wouldn't watch the next one. And why don't we get it, go ahead and get this over with? Yeah. So Scream Three uh, came out in two thousand, and it uh, I'll, I'll talk about the plot real quick. Uh, this follows a couple years after the second film. Uh, they have already made Scream 2, and they are right now in the development... Or Stab 2. Oh, yeah, uh, Stab 2. They're in the development of making Stab 3. 
Uh, and it's, it's kind of a meta commentary on, uh, Hollywood and filmmaking, uh, similar in a way to New Nightmare, where... But not as good as, like, I only, I've only seen part of New Nightmare, I really wasn't just in the mood for it at the time, so I turned it off. But I do really want to watch it, and I do own it. Uh-huh. And I do think it's a, well, I saw that it's really good and good on the meta commentary. It just doesn't do it as well. And I don't think that's Wes's fault. Like, if I was a screenwriter was, but she's not as, like, she's not as good as dialogue with Kevin Will. Like, basically, someone starts murdering people on the set, and Gail and Dewey, who are really the main characters this time, because, like, Nev Campbell was busy with stuff. I forget what exactly. And, like, they do write Sydney out well. She returns mid-film to help, not wanting anyone to die. I guess the girls are being picked up. Oh, okay. Or does she's dropping something off for him either way? Anyway, uh, you were saying, yeah, but like it's just not as good as New Nightmare. It doesn't really get meta commentary well, right? Uh, let's uh, let's talk about what works with this film because there's less that works, I think, than some of the others. Yeah, like, there's the, like, I do think what works to a degree is, 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 there's less that works, for sure, and we'll get into that, but one thing I do think that works is, like, Maureen's given a backstory where she was a young starlet in Hollywood, and while I do think this should have been its own slasher film, like, someone's illegitimate son of a woman who had conceived them by rape, rejected him as he goes on the bloodbath when their daughter ends up on a film set. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not a bad idea. It's just that it doesn't really belong in Scream. But yeah, that's what happened. Maureen was raped, and, like, the head of the studio, like, claims to have nothing, and things just got out of hand, but it's later revealed he did it. And it feels like, especially in Ballsy, given this is a film produced by Weinstein, a jab at Harvey Weinstein himself. Yeah. Like, he could be wrong. It could have been any producer, and it could have been... Like, I think the 70s was just to differentiate him, but I'd be really shocked if a woman in the in, working in the industry who worked around Weinstein wasn't making a subtle jab at him behind his back and he just didn't notice or didn't care or didn't, like, fire her or anything because he didn't want it to be noticeable. Like, that's good. And, like, the voice changer aspect I liked at first because that's kind of interesting because this time around can be anyone's voice, which on one hand is interesting... But the problem is Roman, like, the killer and the director, like, really, it's no use going into the characters for the most part this time. Like, Patrick Dempsey's in it, and yeah. I think the reason he wasn't in 4 was probably because, A, they wanted to stick to the core 3, and B, because he was bit probably busy with Grey's Anatomy at the time. Yeah. Which yeah. is a decent show, but, like, he was probably busy with that, because that was just take that was taking off at the time. I mean, it was also set in a different town, too. Uh, this, the third film is. Yeah, it's set in Hollywood itself. Right. Like, Roman gets killed in the first few minutes as the opening kill, like, talking with his agent. And then his girlfriend, like, that was where I liked it at first, because, like, he uses Roman's ghost face, uses, like, or not Roman, like, Cotton's voice on Cotton, that's it. Yeah. 
Like, Roman uses Cotton's voice on his girlfriend, so when Cotton actually comes back, she thinks he was trying to kill her. And that sets them both up for Ghostface, Roman Ghost. But yeah, the director turns out to have been killing people, and like, his motive's not bad, it's just, it doesn't feel like a scream motive. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Like, I don't expect, like, Cookie Cutter and As Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, and especially Halloween. Like, I tried to watch Halloween 4 and just did not get through it. Like, those are the Halloween films, most of them. I've heard some are good, and I've heard the new ones really good. Like, after the first have shown, just being a derivative of the first film doesn't make you good by comparison. And this one just feels like a slasher film with a movie premise that's barely related to Scream. Like, Sydney's character arc's interesting because she's, like, isolated herself on a compound, which is how they got Nev Campbell out of it for most of it, and is just really paranoid. Right. And the film's about her growing past that and accepting that even if something like this happens again, it's worth not, it's not worth not living your life. Like, that's interesting. But it's just bogged down. Like, Gail's the main character, and she's interesting because, for once, even if she's a minor celebrity now and working for some new low-rent news thing after Entertainment Tonight or some equivalent to it fizzled out, she's genuinely trying to help, and Dewey's just being a prick. Yeah. No, I, I didn't like Dewey in the, in the third film all that well. No, like, he killed... Like, he kills Roman even though he has a connection with Sydney, which is something that I... Like, that's stupid about that is, like, Roman, the main villain, he'd never meet Sydney before the reveal. Like, and there's no reason for him not to, so there's no real shock. Like, he has a personal connection because they're half-siblings and whatever, but that's it. Yeah. Like, to me, that's what makes it not work. Like, yes, Mickey and Debbie Salt were pushing it a bit, and I admit they, that wasn't quite the, like, Billy and Stu reveal quite wasn't it. Uh -huh. But at least Miss Loomis was a nice kind of revealing tied up a loose end from the series as where did his mother go after that? Because Billy's motive for killing Maureen was because she uh, she fucked his dad and he wanted revenge. And Mickey was a nice take on, like, the trials of the time. Here it's just, it's not a bad motive. It just doesn't belong in Scream. It also seems like the, the deaths are completely out of place. Yeah, like Patrick Warburton just sort of gets stabbed. And Patrick Warburton's in this. Which, if your film's not made better, which, to be fair, it is slightly made better when he's on screen. Like, he plays... Like, the, at Dewey's dating the actress. Part of what makes them a douche in this film is that he's dating an actress who plays Gale in the movies, but denying it, even though there's obvious evidence. Like, yeah, he doesn't have to share his romantic life with his ex, and I get, like, okay, we'll get on Dewey for a second before we get back to the Patrick Warburton the Great. And I know we're on a time limit here, Corey, but we yeah, do have to talk about this. Got about 30 minutes left, so. Well, we got a little more than that. But not really. Alright, then we'll wrap it up quick. Dewey just, Dewey got mad at Gail because she left. And here's the thing, though. She wants a career, and it's a small town in California. And she offered for you to come. You two just grew apart naturally. You don't need to be bitter over it. You both are bitter over nothing. Yeah. Well, not nothing, but, like, just... And she does settle, and we'll get into that in a second. 
But, yeah, it's just stupid and annoying. And, like, I don't even feel like talking about most of the characters because they're just not that great. Yeah, I, I like Patrick Warburton in the film, though. Yeah, like, and I like the, like, the one guy, I can't remember his name. Hold on, I have the character sheet here. But, like, I liked one character, and that was it. And I, I like Patrick Warburton. And that was about it. Like, the replacement Gale apparently annoyed Corey. Yeah. And to me, it was just sort of background noise. And most of them were really forgettable. But, like, Tyson Fox, that's it. I forgot his name. But I like the character because he's, like, meta about this. Like, he doesn't really want to work on the film, though. Oh, no, there is... I hate to backtrack just one bit. But I forgot to mention my, one of my favorite characters from 2, Joel who works as, like, Gail's camera man. And he just gets the fuck out of there after Randy dies. Right. Like, and he's, like, outright admitting, like, he says, I'm a black guy in a horror movie, which, they, which again, scary movie took to parodic heights by having all the black reporters and whatnot flee in terror. White people are dying. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, they even did that as an honest joke and scream to it as it worked. You know, like he signed on with Gail, and Gail's like, oh, it's just a little murder. You want the Pulitzer? And, like, he's willing to. But after Randy dies, he just wisely gets the fuck out of there. Right. Like, it works as a red herring, and, he like, he only comes back after the murders are gone. I like that. But, yeah, Scream 3 is so uninteresting outside of the Maureen stuff, which I feel someone should make that into a slasher film. I know the Me Too stuff is very sensitive, so maybe not. But I do think that, so... I'd wait a while. And, okay, maybe not. Now, the more I think about it, maybe Sexual Assault slasher film was doomed from the start. But still wasn't a terrible idea. It just didn't feel like Scream. It's boring to talk about. It was boring to watch. Patrick Dempsey, who is a talented actor, cheated on his wife, apparently. That's why he's kicked off Grey's, but he's not a bad actor. Mm-hmm by any means he just wasn't given anything it just wasn't as obnoxious as with jerry o'connell yeah all right so since we only got 30 minutes and since i really don't really love the next one let's move on let's wrap this up with scream 4 scream 4 uh it came out in 2011 and uh this was the last film that wes craven directed before he passed away. Yeah, they planned to make it another trilogy, but with Wes's death, the mindful little box office, it didn't happen. Right. But I do think as a send-off to the series, it's better than three. Like, three tried to be one, but, like, the worst they did was, like, oh, Roman convinced put Billy and Stu up to murdering people. Like, he didn't come up with the film murdering and liked it and everything, but and then got jealous of Sydney. It's just kind of a stupid retcon. Whereas here, it's just more, since we're low on time, basically Sydney returns home to Woodsboro with her publicist, played by Allison Bree, who's basically replacement Gail, and ends up in the middle of another murder spree, where someone, like, this time, instead of commenting on the end of trilogies, sequels, it's commenting on all the remakes, all the Platinum Dunes one and the Rob Zombie Halloween, like, all the remakes. Right. Like, we talked about the remake rules earlier, but that's basically the gist of the plot. Someone is remaking it, and whoever it is also says they want to hurt Sydney personally. So they're going after everyone around her. And to Sydney's credit, like, 
Not only does she get more badass with each film, she not only took martial arts lessons, but she does try to get out of town. The killer just was smart by planting evidence in her car, which, to be fair, and that's something I like about screaming generals, the cops aren't idiots. Yeah. One cop, non-withstanding, most of them are, the <laughs> cops in charge are pretty smart. Like, the chief and, and the Woodsboro police, PD in both the first and second films is like, he puts protection on Sydney. He has police following her, and in the second film, he has, like, two detectives. It doesn't save them. They get killed, but it's a thought that counts. Yeah. Like, they have, like, actual protection on her. And then the third, like, the third film, like, Patrick Vincey himself only one doesn't only wants to call her out of hiding because she might know something about her mother because her photos of Marine... And this time, like, she tries to get out of town, and Dewey, while he keeps her, does assign two cops to her almost immediately. And, like, she has a niece, Jill, who's kind of the new Sydney, and her friend Kirby, and two film geeks who are in the club and the local stat marathon. And there's some stupid stuff in Scream 4. Like, the thing I don't really like is that Gail and Dewey argue again and this time Dewey, again, well, more reasonable because he doesn't want Gail involved because he's the sheriff and can't just run off with her. And also, it's, it's his wife. You know, there's there's more stakes, I guess, in their relationship as well. Yeah, like, they're married now. Like, Dewey proposed at the end of the last one and she moved to Woodsboro. Like, she gave up her career for him and it's not about being a reporter. She basically just wants to solve this and has the expertise. Like, yeah... At one point, like, when she sets up cameras at the Stabathon, like, the two theater geeks set up, or, like, two film geeks who run the cinema club and also bribe her into coming. Uh-huh. Like, that's also a good scene where basically, like, out of Jaws, they tell them not to do, like, their Stabathon when she knows damn well that attracted kill phase and ends up doing so. So... Because, of course, Kill Face, especially a postmodern one recording his killings, which is a nice touch. Like, it's something they mention, and one of them, Charlie, I think, I'm not sure which one, turns out to be one of the killers. So that's a nice bit of foreshadowing, too. Right. Like, yeah, Charlie and his friend Robbie. They're the ones who are in the film club. And there's also, like, deadweight Mick asshole Trevor. Like, basically, he's Jill's ex-boyfriend who cheated on him. Like, I'm seeing what else he's done. Like, he's apparently on the following, make it or break. Like, he's younger. Like, he's been in a few things, but, like, I'm sure he's better on younger or at least more tolerable. But here, he's just a blank piece of dead wood, like Derek. Just not as bad. But, like, basically, he's the Billy Loomis, even though he doesn't, looks like a clean-cut pretty boy instead of the 90s version of a guy guy rocking rocking corn cosplay 24 hours a day <laughs> but yeah he's useless but I really like Kurt Hayden I like Hayden Pantier in general but I really like Kirby and I go with Wes Craven like said outright that Kirby survived even though it was like they were originally going to have a heartbeat scene I like that just because I don't like her dying simply because almost all the likable characters died. Yeah. Like, the we talked about the two cops scene earlier, and that was awesome. And, oh, there's another great part where, like, the guy talked about Bruce Willis, and when Anthony Anderson's character dies, he says, fuck Bruce Willis. Like, that... But, yeah, like, I get Dewey wanting to protect his wife, getting back on point. 
I almost forgotten about that, but it's kind of just, yeah, it comes off obnoxious, and Gail actually get, but feel, at least on like three, it feels intentional, like, he's trying to do the right thing, and there is one character that annoys me more than not Billy, just because he's flat and just a blatant red herring even more so than Billy. Uh-huh. Because it's a remake. They're established they're probably not going to do exactly like the original, so of course it's not going to be him. He just feels like dead weight. Who's the character that you hate more? Uh, Judy. I don't hate her entirely. Like She gets some good scenes towards the end. She protects Sydney well. And she's, like, helpful during the final showdown at the hospital we'll get to in a second. But early on, she's just kind of, like, creepy around Dewey. Like, same thing. Like, she's basically a blatant red herring. Like, she's like, says things like, if I wish I'd been on the force when you were around because all that adrenaline. She basically tries to keep Gale from him, which does come off as a Dewey move. But since she has a crush on him, it comes off more obnoxious than when Dewey tried to do things like that in the first film. Yeah. Because Dewey is trying to be formal and either Gale seduced him or Tatum just if a flat out ignored him because he was his brother or her brother. And that was funny. Like. But yeah, she's just kind of eh. But she's not terrible. And Jill's kind of eh. Is kind of like, ironically, she, and that, in a nice twist, she's the killer. Like, we'll get more into that in a second, but, like, and that's, like, in hindsight, like, people watching this now, given Emma Roberts, as I was surprised to learn, though not really after watching this, that she got a, like, she went from playing kind of, like, Sweet Every Girls as she started out on Nickelodeon, and she played Nancy Drew, which is a good film. Like, I haven't read the Nancy Drew books, but I did like that film okay. when I saw it and thought it was okay. But, like, she's a good actress, and she's, like, been on Ryan Murphy shows, American Horror Story, and this was made the lead in Screen Queens before that bottomed out, that crap shoot. Okay. But, like, she is a good actress. Yeah. Scream Queens wasn't her fault. I just didn't like it. It tried to do the Scream self-aware horror thing but and tried to be a horror comedy it just didn't work for me but enough about screen queens right but she is a good actress and like i will admit like jill's motive for the killings is really good like basically that her and charlie want to be the new ones and then she offs charlie because she wants the spotlight to herself like it's a nice like comment on the 15 minutes of fame generation that we're still in right yeah, the the YouTube generation and yeah, like there is a bit of like it does go on a bit long as there's a climax at the hospital after the house where she like fakes her way into being a survivor, but there's also a nice way like she noted notes like her and Gail's matching scars and then Gail's like how could she know that, and then Dewey goes to rescue her, because Gail was like and this is one scene I forgot to mention that I really do want to mention before we get go on here. The Stabathon, where, like, it's really cool, because, like, they show the Robert Rodriguez clips, Ghostface is stalking around, there's actually a real, other really cool scene, where, like, first it starts out funny, where, like, Gail puts on a Ghostface mask and somehow blends in with a bunch of teenagers, and just, like, <laughs> Courtney Cox is real, like, as Cougar Town and Friends will attest to, Courtney Cox is great at physical comedy, and it shows here just by her gesturing and pretending... 
and hangs out cameras. And then Ghostface, like, slowly starts draping things, like, black cloth over each camera or something. Like, he does something to block them out or just outright destroys them. Whatever he's doing, and then he just shows up. He or she, it could be either one, but, like, they just show up before the camera, mm -hmm. like, just staring at her. Like, yeah, the kills are more brutal, but, well, I think they're a step down from, say, two. Because I really just want to forget the third one happened. And keep in mind, the second one had the Jerry O'Connell musical number. So it did, and that three is the one I want to forget, for the most part. But it's not even the worst horror sequence scene. It's just aggressively mediocre, but... Yeah. I will say this, though. Right, but for like while well, the kills are more brutal, it also fits. And there's a really damn good one early on. Like their friend whose name I forgot, Dead Meat. Oh, the are you talking about the uh I'm in the closet? Yeah, like basically like basically they call Kirby, who's naturally worried because Jill and her friend who's about to die didn't get a call. So Jill and Kirby are in there. That, like he says, I'm in the closet. So Kirby opens him up and said, and he says, I didn't say I was in your closet. And then shows up across the street and kills their friend in front of them. Like to me, it's one of the most brutal deaths and one of the best deaths in the series. I know I've been saying that a lot. That one is just damn. Yeah. That, like that was a nice trick. And even uh, Nev Campbell, uh, you know, fighting. The uh, ghost face, uh, during that scene, she runs across the street and uh, tries to save her, but, you know, she's already dead. Yeah, and, and there's a really good scene, like, even if it turns out Jill's faking it, where Jill, like, Sydney tries to shield her from seeing her dad, and she does anyway. Granted, at this point, the audience doesn't know that Jill's the killer, and even if you do, it still adds a layer of her faking it that well. Yeah. But I would say that that was really good. Yeah, no, I I really like the the fourth film uh, quite a bit. And as a matter of fact, I would say I'd even like I I would say it's my second favorite. Yeah, me too. Like I'd rank them one, four, three, four, two, and three. Yeah, that that'd be my ranking as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, I I think the. It sort has, of wrap things up, you know. Well, we have one more thing to talk about. Okay. We also should finish up three. Like, Allison Brie was great when she was in it. Like, she dies pretty early on, after, and Sydney wisely fires her because she's reveling in the fact that, and, like, one company wants to sign her. Like, Sydney's a, writing books of her own now. Yeah. And, like, there's great moments. And, like, yeah, I think we covered about everything of interest. It's not that it's a bad or dense film we just cover most of it and like Kirby the reason I like her she's kind of edgy and well not because she's edgy it's a stupid thing to say but just because Kate like she's kind of this independent girl with a weird haircut <laughs> but it works like Hayden Panettiere plays it off and she's basically like the real replacement Randy to me uh -huh. and I wish we'd gotten more of her simply because Hayden Panettiere is a good actress yeah and that, I just wanted to give her more praise. Okay, one last thing before we wrap things up, since we are low on time, and I think we've covered most of the things about Scream 4, 4 worth it. 
Mm. Yeah, like, maybe the fact that Sydney never mentioned having a cousin before, but really, do you mention you have a cousin in daily, discu- daily discussion? And Not really. I mean... <laughs> you don't well, re- there you go. You don't really mention cousins or nephews, nieces exactly. very often. So. Like, she is just... Like, most other characters killed were either a non-entity. But, like, the... F- and I say the climax, despite the fake-out, was really good. Like, the final fight at the house. The, the Like, the fight at the house of Sydney's good. The double death. And then later, like, the confrontation. Okay, one more thing to mention before we get to the end credits music. And then try and wrap it up for the day. Like, one more important thing. How Sydney killed her. Because, like, basically, like, Gail's distracts her while Sydney warms up into field later and says, I have one last thing to say. What? Please? No. Clear. Clear? And then Sydney comes behind her with the defibrillator and shot. Clear. Shocks her in the head. That was awesome. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, there's a slightly cringy line, but it was well warranted. Where he's like, first rule, you forgot the first rule of remakes, Jill. Don't fuck with the original. But it was also awesome because she was trying to make herself into Sydney. Right. Okay, but yeah, Scream 4 is excellent. If we were brief on it, it was both time and because, honestly, it didn't have quite the stupidity 2 or 3 had. It was just really good. Yeah. And now, before we wrap up, like since we still have about 5 minutes, 15 minutes on the recording before Corey has to go... Because he has work today and he has to get ready and all that. Yep. The end credits music, which I we re-listened to before this podcast, and I feel since we have the extra time, we might as well talk about it. Like, the first one has whisper to a scream. Like, this really generic 90s music that does not fit at all. It's like a 90s pop song that... It's like, like with BoJack Horseman, which Corey's only seen the first season of. But, like, with the generic 90s grunge song, it's like the Inya or, like, the New Agey female music equivalent of that. Like, that's what it feels like. It's the 90, it's the mid-90s equivalent of generic 90s, generic 90s New Age, generic 90s New Age song, whispering <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Okay, the second one, and this was a funny gag, I give it to him, because we forgot how much comedy there was in these movies. It's I Think I Love You, but by the band Less Than Jake, who everyone rightfully forgot, but they do do a good, like, it is a good cover, and it is, like, good beat, but it's also just a funny gag, and it fits the tone of Scream a lot better than Whisper to a Scream. Yeah. Because, like, it says, I think I love you, but what am I so afraid of? And then for the third one, it's just a Hollywood redo of Red, Hollywood version of Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seed. Hollywood is running, makes you kill the vibe, makes you kill the vibe, makes you kill the vibe. <laughs> I love gorillas. Okay, but yeah. But it is pretty good, and it is good to go out on a Red Right Hand, and it does, is the first of two to fit in. And then my favorite is the fourth one, Bad Karma, which I forgot who it was by, but it's really damn good. Like, it's just a bad karma. Like, it's just really, Bad Karma's a bitch. I can't remember all the lyrics, but it is damn good. 
Like, it's by Ida Maria. So I don't know much about the band, but at the very least, their version of ba- that song is really, like, just good and really just fits with what happened to Jill. Because she did this... She killed all her friends and whatnot, so the lyrics fit just what happened to her and lead the series out on a high note, credits-wise. Right. All right, so we're about finished. So, final thoughts on the franchise as a whole? Yeah, uh, as a whole, like, I I think this is actually one of the better horror franchises. And quality-wise, like, it's like Chucky, where, like, it's fairly level. Like, Chucky does have at least two notable dips compared to Screams 1, that's also longer, like with Seed of Chucky, which is infamous, and we'll get to those in December. Yeah, and I mean, with uh, even with Scream Three, like Scream Three is better than most bad movies like, and horror yeah, franchises. Yeah, that's something I said to you too. Like, yeah, I don't, not to take your opinion away. I just oh no, agree you're fine. With you. like, like I said the same thing. Like it's just, it's still not as bad as say Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare. Yeah, or I mean, like. Jason Goes to Hell I was an infamous one but I don't know how good or bad it is Jason Goes to Manhattan there we go that's a more <laughs> aka or as Linkara put it greatly recently Jason goes on a boat to Manhattan <laughs> but yeah the quality is like I'd say Child's Play no it's com- like Child's Play is, but unlike Child's Play it's not like fun because it's goofy but usually at least decent here it's just really good, most of them. Like, 2 has its flaws, but it's still good in comparison to the other two. 4 just really had a had the freshness of waiting so long, as well as having Kevin Williamson worked on it. And I think the rough edges are just his script being rewritten. And even then, he's not perfect. He wrote Scream 2. He wrote in the I Think I Love You scene. Oh, Okay. Presumably, that could have been a studio mandate for all I know. I have no idea why the fuck that happened. <laughs> At least it gave us the idea for Scream the Musical, but yeah, it's like, I think part of it's just there's less entry, so there's less stuff to fuck up, but yeah, there's a bit, like even among smaller horror series, there's a better quality ratio. Like it didn't have a big dive off a cliff. Like even if 4 is apparently divisive to some people, some like it, some don't. I can see why, but I can also why it's a love it or hate it film. But still, even if you don't like it, you, you probably wouldn't think it was a piece of shit. It'd probably just be like three where you thought it was boring or just not that good. So yeah. I, you know, I really liked it though. I know overall it's a great franchise and it's worth a watch this Halloween season. And it was great for our Halloween episode. Oh yeah. So. uh... Is there any last comments that you have? Jerry O'Connell should not be in a musical. He has a Pierce Bra... Well, okay. I'm not going to compare him to Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia, which we'll probably also have to cover. Like, I know, I'm referencing a lot. That's one we'll definitely have to cover, just because it's weird. Not terrible, but weird. (laughs) But, well, yeah, he's not Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia bad, but he shouldn't sing again. But he should definitely, but he definitely deserved it better. But the Jerry O'Connell musical number is not a reflection of how great Scream is overall. I recommend it highly. And if you don't like it, that's fine. I understand. It's probably not to everyone's taste, but certainly to ours. Mm-hmm. 
Like, I get it. Like, it really tears slasher films apart. And sometimes meta isn't for everyone. But if you like meta text, if you like comedy, like, it's not, like, a full-out, like, black comedy. Like, it's just more... It's more like Buffy, where it's, like, a serious situation. Like, the types of jokes that... But, like, there's jokes in the middle. Or, like, Riverdale, but actually good. <laughs> and uh, keep in mind when I say that, I'm a huge fan of Archie Comics. Not because they ruined it, it's because they, they've done darker and edgier there better. I can rant about Riverdale sometime. I'm else, or I'm thinking of Archie Blogs. I can talk about that elsewhere. Where... We're low on time, so but Scream itself is great. And if you like that sort of thing, you'll love these films. Oh, yeah. Young or old. So, right. well, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next month with... Uh, Teenage the- Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yep. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Turtles in a half shell. Turtle Actually, power. I should do that with something a little more pro. T-U-R-T-L-E power. T-U-R-T-L-E power. Teenage Mutant Ninja. Here's a half shell. There's a hero's floor. There's a... Something, something, something. Who could ask for more? The crime waves are high with muggings mysterious. Police are all curious. I'll memorize it by next time. <laughs> but yeah, we're doing the original 90s TMNT th- films for November. And since we already talked about it, like we're basically doing the original trilogy. And then at some point, since there were two animated films, even if they're unrelated, we're going to do the four kids special movie, Turtles Forever. And then and TMNT at some other point and the Platinum Dune ones at another point. But next month, we're just doing the original 90s trilogy. Yep. G1 through 3. Good. What? Good. So bad it's good. And oh, God, I am fearing this. <laughs> As I'm a huge... But I'm looking forward to it. I'm a huge Ninja Turtles fan. Yeah, I, I, I grew up with those movies, so it'll, it'll be good to revisit them. And I grew up with the 2003 series and the 90s movie, like, once I got it. But I didn't really watch the... And I watched the second one a few times as a kid. So mm-hmm. I grew up with them too. So this will be great. And then in December, since we already mentioned it, we're doing Chucky Simber. And we're doing all the... Since I already mentioned we'd be doing the Child's Play movies. And like the others, we're going to at least try to, given our schedules, do chi- all seven Child's Play films. Yeah. Yep. So keep an eye out for those, and we'll see you next time. Yep. Thank you.